Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. Inflammation is a very common condition with women with PCOS. There are a lot of studies that show that women with PCOS have low-grade inflammation. So what does this mean? This means essentially that at all times, even on a just regular day like today, your body thinks there's a problem, right? And it involves the immune system. It tells the immune system, hey, you, you got to be more active. There's a problem in the body. There's an injury. There's some type of situation happening that isn't normal. Now, under normal circumstances, inflammation is great. It's actually helpful. It's meant to keep us alive. So if we fall down and we scrape our knee and the area gets red, it gets swollen and it gets painful, those are all things that are related to an inflammatory reaction of the body to that injury. And it's meant to keep us alive because if we didn't know there's an injury, we could bleed to death or there could be a bigger problem that develops if the body is not aware of it. So that's called acute inflammation. That kind of inflammation is good and it's helpful and we want it. What we don't want is low-grade inflammation, as in PCOS. So when low-grade inflammation happens, it means that there's constantly repair going on in the body and the body is not ready to do its normal functions. And this is why when we have low-grade inflammation, we're super tired, but we can't sleep. Right. If you've ever had uh, difficulty falling asleep, but you were so tired, that's often linked to inflammation. If you're not ovulating, that's oftentimes linked to inflammation, because if we're having inflammation, the body does not want to get pregnant. We don't want a pregnancy when the body perceives there's a, there's a problem. Right. That's not a good time to get pregnant as far as the body is concerned. So it's going to shut down ovulation if there's a lot of inflammation in the system. Okay. The other thing that happens is the body can't do its normal repair, its normal maintenance of tissues. So we start seeing a lot of problems in things like your gut. So if you have IBS symptoms, things like constipation, diarrhea, pain, cramping, bloating, those are often linked to inflammation. If you have skin breakouts, things like acne, psoriasis, hives, those are actually also linked to inflammation. A lot of women with PCOS don't realize that some of the symptoms and problems that they're dealing with are related to PCOS. Even things like gum disease, okay, your gums in your mouth, gum disease is linked to inflammation, okay? So things like IBS, acne, gum disease, migraines, headaches, joint pain, those are all things that are related to inflammation. But again, it's low grade. It's not so acute. It's not so apparent that we can't function. We can function through these things. Like I can function if I have acne or I have a little joint pain or I have migraines from time to time, but it's not normal and it can be fixed. So that's the good news. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do you fix inflammation? How do you reverse it? How do you kind of tame the flame of inflammation and make sure that you're not only feeling better and reversing your symptoms, but you're reducing your risk of disease? Because when you have low grade inflammation over time, it's going to increase your risk for cancer, for diabetes, for heart disease, 
and for even things that are related to brain function, because when we have inflammation, the brain cells are being damaged constantly. So reducing inflammation is linked to less Alzheimer's disease, better brain function. And who doesn't want better brain function, right? I mean, come on, that's a given. We all want that, right? Okay. So when we talk about inflammation and what we can do about it, the most information that we have comes from studies about the Mediterranean diet. So the Mediterranean diet you've probably heard about before is a very well-researched eating pattern. And we know that it's related to reducing inflammation to a very significant degree. So everything that we know about anti-inflammatory eating or most of what we know about it comes from studies in the Mediterranean. And I'm from Israel, so I know a good amount about the Mediterranean diet. I grew up in this pattern of eating. And I can tell you that a lot of the foods that people eat in the Mediterranean are very natural and they're different than what we see here in the United States. Many of them are, not all of them. So what we're gonna talk about today are different ways that you can start incorporating foods into your day that will help reduce inflammation. And many of them are based on the Mediterranean diet. Okay, so let's do that. Number one that I want you to think about, and this is a given, you've heard it before, but I wanna ask you, are you doing it? It's produce, okay? And specifically fruits and vegetables. A lot of times we hear fruits and vegetables being used together, just like I did just now, but they're actually very different. So when we talk about produce, we're talking mostly about a focus on vegetables, specifically non-starchy vegetables. So we're talking about all vegetables with the exception of corn, peas, lima beans, potatoes. Those are considered more starchy. They're more similar nutritionally to pasta, bread, uh, noodles. Okay. So we're talking about non-starchy vegetables. And what we know about vegetables is not only do they contain a ton of vitamins and minerals and fiber, and they help us feel full. They also contain compounds called phytochemicals. Phytochemicals are chemicals in the food that are naturally occurring and help the body fight off inflammation specifically in very brightly colored produce. So in my program, we talk about how to add color into your meals and how important it is. And what I tell the ladies to do is to aim for at least four to five different colors per day, because oftentimes when we think about produce, we think about green, right? We think about lettuce and spinach and broccoli, but there are a lot of other colors that we have to include every single day in order to get the anti-inflammatory benefits. So specifically, we're talking about very bright colors. Colors in nature are associated with different phytochemicals. These are antioxidants that are going to help reduce inflammation, but they do it in different ways. So we need all of them. We need a variety. Now you're probably incorporating some vegetables into your day right now, but what I want you to think about are two things, amount and color. Are you getting five colors per day? And second thing is amount. Are you getting about two to three cups of vegetables per meal? Most people are not, okay? So it's harder to do it at breakfast, but if you can do two to three cups of vegetables per meal for lunch and dinner, you're gonna see a huge difference. You're not only gonna be able to manage your weight more easily because vegetables help us keep full, they're gonna keep us satiated and satisfied for longer because of the volume, but they're also going to add that benefit from the antioxidants and make sure that your body is better equipped to fight off inflammation. We're talking about brightly colored vegetables like purple, red, yellow. These are the colors that we want to see. So think about things like 
peppers and eggplants and zucchini, yellow squash, and all of those very brightly colored vegetables, those are going to be your best bets. Now, we do know that fruits help as well. However, with PCOS, we want to be, you know, a little careful with fruits. It's not something that we can eat in unlimited amounts. So usually I recommend between two to three servings of fruit per day, depending on what else is in your diet. But if you're going with fruit, you do want to go with the higher antioxidant ones, which are berries. Berries are a great staple for anti-inflammatory eating. They're loaded with phytochemicals, antioxidants. So they're going to really help your body reduce inflammation. And berries also happen to be one of the highest fiber fruits, which brings me to the next thing that you can do which is increased fiber intake. Now, unfortunately, many women with PCOS don't get enough fiber because they're always cutting back on carbohydrates. And carbohydrates are the main source of fiber in your diet. So when we go low carb or when we go keto, we're missing out on this huge benefit of fiber because we're not eating foods that are rich in fiber. So most people can't get to the recommended amounts of fiber unless they're intentionally trying to do that. And does anybody know? Let me know in the comments if you know how many grams of fiber are recommended per day, specifically for women with PCOS. Like, what's the one number we should be aiming for? It's higher than most people take in. And again, most people don't get to the fiber amounts that are recommended by accident, right? We need to really be making an effort. And unfortunately, vegetables don't contribute that much. So we want to focus on carbohydrates that have fiber. And those are going to be your whole grains, things like oats, sprouted bread, things like brown rice, quinoa, bulgur wheat. And we also want to look at things like avocados, artichokes, as well as beans and legumes. Those are going to be your best bets when it comes to adding fiber. And we do want to get to about 30 grams per day. So if you break it up, you never want to add 30 grams of fiber in one meal. That's going to be a recipe for a lot of digestive distress. What we want to do is we want to spread it out evenly throughout your day. So we want to make sure that we're taking in maybe about 7 to 10 grams of fiber per meal. That's going to be a pretty good amount to incorporate so that you do it gradually. Okay. And then fiber always goes together with water. You never want to add fiber. If you're currently not consuming enough water in your day, and you know you need to work on hydration, don't add fiber quite yet. You want to get the hydration up and going in a good amount first, because when you add fiber without water, you're running the risk of kind of having a backup in your gut. So that's not going to be good. It's definitely not going to be good for bloating. So I want to make sure that you know fiber and water always go together. Now, why is fiber so great for inflammation? For a few reasons. The first one is fiber helps the body recycle fats. So it's going to help your body get rid of fat. And we know that fat actually contributes to inflammation. And when I'm talking about fat, I'm talking about fat tissue. Okay. So if you have high fat percentages or high amounts of fat cells in your body, fiber is going to help recycle them. It's going to help replace those tissues and kind of shift your body composition. And that's very helpful for inflammation. The second thing that fiber does is it helps good gut bacteria grow. So the good guys in your gut are going to grow when you eat a lot of fiber. And that's going to be very beneficial because we know from studies that good gut bacteria signals to the brain that there's no inflammation in the body. It helps the body reduce inflammation. And then the third thing, so gut bacteria, 
recycling of fat. This is, these are two things that fiber helps with when it comes to inflammation. And the third thing is that it's going to help increase your intake of those same phytochemicals. Usually when we talk about high fiber foods, those are going to be foods that are very high in phytochemicals as well, because they come from plants, they're natural whole foods, and that's going to be really helpful for inflammation as well. But just to recap, so far, we talked about fruits and vegetables. We talked about fiber, and I gave you some goals as to how to gauge if you're getting enough. So we're aiming for two to three cups of vegetables per meal. We're aiming for 30 grams of fiber per day. Now, you've probably heard this before, but I want to know, are you doing it? And have you ever tried to quantify if you're eating enough of those things? Sometimes people will track their intake and they'll get a pretty good understanding of where they are. And sometimes people have no idea. So if you're not tracking, now may be a good time to start so that you can see where you stand with your fiber intake or vegetable intake, and you can get a good baseline to build off of, Okay. Let's move on to talking about fats, which is the third thing that is really important when it comes to inflammation. We know that it's not the amount of fat that people are eating that makes a difference. It's more the type. Okay. So there are different types of fats that are found in our food supply and they all act very differently in our body. Now, what we know from the Mediterranean diet is that people in those regions eat a lot of plant-based fats. And specifically, if you've ever been to Greece or Italy, or you, you know of Greek food and Italian food, what do they use a lot of? Olive oil, right? A lot of olive oil. And there's never like a measuring or any type of quantification of the amounts. Olive oil just flows in the Mediterranean like water. And that's because olive oil is a very unsaturated oil. So it's a type of oil that is healthier for your cardiovascular system, and it can help reduce inflammation. On the flip side, inflammatory oils include things that come from seed oils. And we see those a lot in processed foods, in things like salad dressings and store-bought salad dressings, snacks, frozen foods. These are your what we call industrial seed oils, and they are all the vegetable type oils, right? So there's really no vegetables and vegetable oil. It's made from seeds of different vegetables. So when we talk about corn oil, grape seed oil, cotton seed oil, all of these oils, soybean oils, all of these oils are considered pro-inflammatory, meaning they promote inflammation specifically because they contain something called omega-6. Okay, so you've probably heard of omega-3 fatty acids, which are beneficial, and we'll talk about them in a second, but what we want to limit are omega-6 fatty acids because those promote inflammation, and they're coming mostly from those oils that I just mentioned. So if you have a package of any snack food, or if you have a bottled salad dressing at home, or if you have some type of frozen entree in your freezer, I want you to take it, look at the ingredient list and see if it contains things like soybean oil, or even worse, palm oil, or cottonseed oil, or vegetable oil. 
These are going to be your omega-6 type fats that we want to limit. Now, we're not going to be able to avoid them altogether. And if you know anything about me, you know I don't believe in restriction. But I do want you to pay attention because if you're incorporating foods into your breakfast, lunch, and dinner that contain these omega-6 fats, you may want to find some alternatives that are going to be healthier for you. And specifically, replacing those with plant-based fats that are natural, like olives and olive oil, nuts and seeds, so almonds, walnuts, pistachios, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, flax seeds, chia seeds. Those are all excellent sources, as well as things like, of course, avocados and coconuts. Coconut is actually okay to consume. There are a lot of studies that show that extra virgin coconut oil is okay. So I believe that you can incorporate unsweetened coconut flakes into your yogurt if you like that, or you can use extra virgin coconut oil to cook if that's something that you like and enjoy. There are benefits to that and studies do show it's not, even though coconut oil is saturated, it's not as harmful as the other oils that I mentioned. So reducing the amount of omega-6 fatty acids in your diet is gonna be huge for reducing inflammation And also, when you think about it, of course, if you're going to reduce those, it means you're going to reduce the amount of processed foods in your day. And that has a benefit because it's going to be less calories, less sodium, less additives. So all in all, you're going to gain a lot of benefit from replacing them. Okay. When we talk about processed foods, not all processed foods are bad. And in my program, I show the ladies how to evaluate if if a food is just processed enough so that it's convenient it's quick and it's easy to prepare or if it's heavily processed and we want to avoid it, right? There's a distinction between those two things. So the first thing and the easiest thing that you can do is look at the ingredient list. The more ingredients, the more processed, right? So we want the shortest, most easy to understand ingredients in our food. That's going to be your best bet and a good first step to evaluating whether our food is too processed or just processed enough and you can have it. Okay. Now let's go back to talking about omega-3 fatty acids. As you know, omega-3 comes mostly from fish. There is omega-3 fats in walnuts and flax, but that type of omega-3 fat is not as easily absorbed and used by the body. Okay. So about only about 1% of the good fat in walnuts is converted to omega-3s that are usable. So if we're looking for omega-3s, we want to look for fish sources. So things like tuna, salmon, trout, sardines, and make sure that you're getting those two very active components of omega-3s, which are called EPA and DHA. The recommendation in order to get the amount that you need, which is about two to three grams per day, is about three to four ounce servings twice a week. So let me say that again. We're looking to get three to four grams on average of omega-3 fats per day. That is going to help reduce inflammation. And the way that you would get it if you're not taking a supplement is by incorporating fish at least two times a week. And the serving is about four to five ounces. Okay. So when we talk about adding fresh fish, a lot of people don't like fish and I get it. It's not something that's easy to cook, but at the same time, If you're not getting it consistently, I want you to think about adding a supplement. And there are a lot of great supplements that you can incorporate. So it's not really hard to do. Okay. 
All right, moving on. So we talked about fiber. We talked about vegetables. We talked about omega-6 fats. We talked about fatty fish for the omega-3s. These are all things that are going to help you tame inflammation. And I want to tell you, you don't have to do all of them. So I know it could be overwhelming. If you're not doing most of the things that I mentioned so far, don't worry. You start with one or two things, the low hanging fruit, the things that are most convenient and easy for you to do right now is what you should get started with because that's going to be the most sustainable way to go. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about herbs and spices. So someone mentioned, I think it was Indy who mentioned turmeric and ginger. Those are great anti-inflammatory spices. So if you're doing things like stir fries or soups or any type of stew or other cooked dish, you can throw things like turmeric, allspice, cinnamon, ginger. Those are all wonderful anti-inflammatory spices, as well as things like herbs, sage, rosemary. So you can buy them dry or you can buy them fresh if you're, if you kind of feel more comfortable in the kitchen and you can add those to different dishes. That's going to help boost the nutritional quality of it. It's going to help it become more anti-inflammatory as well. Now you can also use ginger in tea, right? So you can steep ginger tea, or if you like turmeric teas, those are fine. I I find them a little bitter. I don't know if it's something I can do every single day, but I would encourage you to try to add those anti-inflammatory spices because a little bit goes a long way and you can really get some benefit from it with easy use of it. If you add half a teaspoon here or there, that could be something that's beneficial and it's delicious. And there are a lot of recipes online where they're using, a lot of them are in Asian cuisine, Indian cuisine, but Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cuisine will use a lot of the anti-inflammatory spices. So those are really good kind of recipes to look out for. Let's talk about green tea a little bit. Green tea is extremely rich in antioxidants that help reduce inflammation. It's also, even though green tea is caffeinated, it contains something called L-theanine, which is a type of compound that keeps you focused, keeps you alert, but it doesn't have the same effect as caffeine like from coffee. So if caffeine from coffee is making jittery and agitated, or if you feel like it's increasing your cortisol levels, you can definitely make the switch to green tea and still get the benefits of caffeine with alertness, focus, more sharp mental function, but not get the kind of jittery part of it. And you also get a ton of benefits from the antioxidants in green tea. Okay. So You can use simple green tea, or some people like to use the more concentrated form, which is matcha. Matcha is a green tea powder that's very dense. It's very condensed. And some people like to use it. There are a lot of different lattes, and there's even matcha ice cream now. So just be careful with things where there's a lot of added sugar, because you're probably not going to get the benefit of the antioxidants if you're getting it with a load of sugar. So that's not the point. It's counterproductive. So just be careful with hyped up beverages and products. There's matcha muffins. So a muffin is still a muffin, even if it's got matcha in it. So just be careful with that and be sure to incorporate it in a way that makes sense. I do have a lot of clients who put matcha, put ginger, turmeric into smoothies. So you can definitely incorporate that if you're doing a protein shake or some type of juice or a smoothie, you can add matcha or ginger or of course, cinnamon 
into it and that will help get that portion in in your day. Okay. All right, moving on. I put some notes for myself because I didn't want to forget anything. I want to talk a little bit about trans fats. Okay. So thankfully, trans fats are no longer a major issue in products, but they used to be, and there are still a lot of products that contain them, but way less than it used to be. When I was in nutrition school, I worked at the New York City Department of Health and I was an intern. I wasn't paid. And one of the projects they gave me, I think was the project that nobody wanted was to basically go through every food in the grocery store database. There is such a thing online and find what products contain trans fats. So I can tell you at that time, it was a long time ago, it was when New York City was really banning trans fats. They were going out with a very big campaign to ban trans fats and they wanted to map out what grocery store items had trans fats. So I can tell you that things like Marie Callender, frozen chicken pot pie and Lunchables, a lot of kid products had trans fats. The reason that we focus so much on trans fats and the reason they were banned is that studies do show that trans fats are extremely harmful for our body because they clog the arteries, they increase bad cholesterol, and they also lower our good cholesterol. So it's a double whammy with trans fats. So we definitely want to avoid them at all costs. And usually they're going to be found in baked goods, in anything that has a crust or a dough, like Pillsbury Crescent, I remember the Crescent Rolls used to have it. And what happened, I'm not going to say it was a result of my work or anything like that, but after New York went through this whole big bin and this whole project, a lot of companies did take out the trans fats from their recipes. And now they're no longer available in food products, which is a good thing, but they're still out there. So I want you to really pay attention to trans fats. Always read the label. Always make sure that under fats, you're looking to see that trans fats, they should be zero. And then you can do a double check by going down to the ingredient list and making sure that there are no partially hydrogenated oils. Anytime a food has partially hydrogenated oils, that is a sign that there are some trans fats in it. Even if the label says zero, they are not required to label it if there's 0.9 or 0.5. If it's below one, they're not, they can put zero on the label, but I do want you to check. Not that you can need to avoid them at all costs. If it's something that you like and enjoy, it's fine here and there. But again, if you're seeing partially hydrogenated oils in a lot of your products, you may want to find alternatives that don't contain them because they are processed and damaging and are associated with increased inflammation. Let's recap a little bit about what we talked about, okay? We talked about produce, specifically vegetables. Color and amount is going to matter. We talked about fiber getting to 30 grams per day for three reasons. It recycles fats, it increases the good gut bacteria, and it adds phytochemicals into your day. We talked about types of fat, focusing on plant-based fats as opposed to the seed oils that are high in omega-6 fats. So we want to avoid cottonseed, soybean oil, grapeseed oil, uh, peanut oil, vegetable oil. Those are typically not going to be your best bets. Adding fish oil as a supplement if you're not getting enough fish in your week. Okay, so we're looking for two servings that are about four ounces each of fatty fish like tuna, mackerel, sardines or salmon. If you're not getting that, go get a supplement. And also we talked about trans fats, 
Okay. And we talked about herbs, spices, and green tea. So lots of different ways that you can start reducing inflammation. And again, do it slowly. Do one thing. Focus on one thing this week, then double down on on it next week, and then add one more. When you try to do all the things, you burn out. I am not a believer of doing a lot of different things, only half-assed, right? I want you to do one thing and go deep on it. Go really deep. Maximize the amount of time that you spend on it. Optimize how you're doing it. Do it really, really well then move on. That's going to give you the best results. We don't want to do things on a surface level. We want to go deep. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about something that's not related to food. It's related to lifestyle. So one of the things we know from the Mediterranean diets, samples and studies is that in addition to all the foods that I just talked about, in addition to the fact that they eat a lot of plant-based fats, they eat a lot of produce and fruits and vegetables, There are two things they eat very little of, and that's red meat and sugar, okay? So sweets are not big in the Mediterranean region. They definitely don't eat a lot of shelf-stable sweets, so they use dried fruit and fresh fruit and nuts as a dessert, okay? And red meat is only consumed once or twice a month, so very, very little. They focus mostly on fish, chicken, in Turkey. And red meat is kind of at the tip of the pyramid. It's the food group that they eat the least of, as well as sweets. So that's something to note and something to think about as far as inflammation. We do know that saturated fats from animal foods like high fat steaks and ribs and meat do contribute to inflammation. And we also, of course, know that sugar is highly inflammatory in your body. Now, again, I do not believe in cutting out sugar. Whenever I see someone online who says, I've been sugar-free, I didn't touch a thing with sugar for three weeks, I say, okay, talk to me in three additional weeks. Let's see how you're doing then. It's not sustainable. I don't want anyone to try to cut things out and feel like they're missing out or feel like they're deprived. So you can incorporate sugar and sweets into your day in a reasonable way and enjoy it and feel like you're, you're, you're normal. You're not on some sort of a deprivation diet, but you don't want to overdo it. So no pun intended, but I want you to find the sweet spot for sweets and make sure that you are getting the pleasure for them from them, but they don't control you. They don't kind of own you and dictate your day. It's really important because sugar is not the best thing for your body. Okay. If you can replace sugar with naturally occurring sugars from things like dried fruits and fruits, that's great. And you can train your body and your palate to accept those foods as sweet. I used to work at a program where we did cut out sweets for about six weeks. And then when people, so they, people weren't eating fruits, they weren't eating anything that was carbohydrate. That was a long time ago. And In that program, once someone started incorporating sweets, they incorporated fruit first and it tasted so sweet to them. Like just regular apples or bananas or berries tasted extremely sweet. And that's because they reset their threshold for what's sweet enough. And you can do this as well. I'm not saying you need to be on this very strict plan in order to do that, but you can gradually reduce your threshold for sweetness if you train your palate to accept less sweet things like fruit. So try it. It's a really good experiment. And it's something that you can definitely do over time. Okay, so at the tip of the pyramid, we have red meat 
and we have sweets. Now, the other thing that we know is about lifestyle. So this is not so much related to food, but it's related to how people eat. So it's not about what they eat, it's how they eat. And what we know from the Mediterranean diet studies is that people always eat together. And they have a really good sense of community because when you're feeling connected, when you have community, when you have support, you feel less stressed. And stress is a major contributor for inflammation. So with any way that you can reduce stress, whether it's through connection, through support, through accountability and feeling like a part of a community, and you can reduce your stress in that way because you feel mentally better, that's going to help reduce inflammation as well as movement. Movement is extremely important for inflammation. When we move, a few different things happen in our body. The first thing is that any type of movement is like a wake-up call for your cells to take up sugar from the bloodstream and use up insulin. And for women with PCOS, that's extremely beneficial because it's going to help reduce insulin resistance. So it doesn't have to be a gym session. It could be just you getting up and having less sedentary time, less sitting time, that's going to help reduce insulin resistance. So a lot of times people tell me I'm not able to exercise either physically, like I feel physically uncomfortable, or I just don't have the time. I want you to think about not getting active, but getting less sedentary, moving more and sitting less, okay? That's gonna help with insulin resistance. It's gonna help with inflammation as well, because when we move, our pores open up to let out sweat, so even if you're not drenched in sweat, when you're moving, your body is building up heat, it's going to open up your pores and then toxins are being released from your body through your skin, believe it or not. And that's going to be really helpful for inflammation as well. So that's a form of detox that nobody really talks about, but is very, very beneficial. Our skin is our largest organ. So anytime that our pores open up and the body is releasing toxins, it's going to reduce your inflammation and you're going to feel better. That's part of the reason why people feel so energized and refreshed after they engage in some movement. So think about that as another way to reduce inflammation. And then I can stress the importance of sleep enough. When we don't sleep well, either we don't get good quality sleep or we don't get enough hours of sleep, it's going to increase inflammation because the body didn't have time to repair itself. All the repair, all the maintenance on the body happens at night. This is when the immune system is kind of running around. Everything is being fixed up and repaired from the damage of the day. So if you've been exposed to cigarette smoke or pollution or any type of toxins in your environment during your day, at night is when everything gets detoxed in your body by the immune system. If you're not sleeping well, the immune system can't kick in. It can't do its job. So sleep is detrimental. Poor sleep and lack of sleep and low quality sleep is really detrimental to inflammation and to our overall health. So there are a lot of things that you can do. I actually did a whole podcast episode about this. I believe it's either 10, episode 10 or episode 11. I can't remember but it's one of the PCOS success boosters, I call it. So go back and listen. I gave a lot of tips about how to optimize your sleep in that episode. And you're going to be able to get some actionable tips to get started if sleep is an issue for you. Okay. And I want to make sure that also, if you want to work with me on reversing insulin resistance, 
on reversing inflammation, really get some help in putting into practice all of the things that I talked about today, where I show you step by step how to actually implement all these things into your life so you don't feel overwhelmed and confused. You actually have a roadmap to follow. I want you to get on the waiting list for Reset Your PCOS. I'm going to be opening up the doors in a couple months, and I want to make sure that you're the first one to get notified if you do want to join us. So I'm going to offer special pricing to anyone on the waiting list. So just put your name on there. Go to DaphnaChazen.com forward slash reset. And uh, I'm going to let you know when doors open. And if you're still interested, I'd love to have you join us. It's a great program. If I may say so myself, the ladies in it right now are crushing it. They're having so much fun, making so much progress. So I want the same for you so that you can reverse PCOS symptoms and feel amazing. Okay. I am going to see you here again next week. Same time, same place. I hope you have a great day and I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. 